Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, I'm Rishi Desai, and today I'm delighted to welcome Maria Thacker-Gerta to Raise the Line. Maria is the founding CEO of the Center for Global Health Innovation and the president and CEO of Georgia Bio. She's a longtime board member of the Kurtzville Jakob Disease Foundation, which supports families affected by this rare neurodegenerative condition, as well as education and research efforts. Her father, Dr. Stephen Thacker, who interviewed me when I first applied to the CDC, succumbed to CJD in 2013. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks, Rishi. I'm excited to be here with you. It's quite the uh, prolific podcast y'all put together in just two and a half years. I appreciate you saying that. We have had a number of folks from public health and the CDC be part of the podcast. And of course, during the pandemic, that was very useful. I am curious, you know, about you and kind of what got you first interested in public health and the life sciences. What made you specifically passionate about these areas? Well, the honest answer is I grew up in it. My father was at the CDC for nearly 40 years, and I grew up surrounded by people like Dr. Jeffrey Copeland, uh, Dr. David Satcher, Claire Broom, many other people that if in the world of public health are just mainstays and leaders at the agency. So I grew up in that world. And funny enough, I never thought I'd actually end up in public health. I tell the story and people are surprised. I actually went to college hoping to become an English teacher. That evolved into a degree in environmental sciences. After some water permitting and learning that it wasn't my path, I did an ORISE fellowship at the CDC at the sister agency, ATSDR. And during that time, I did some long-term protocol research on exposure to the, the chemicals and the weaponry. But we finished my project a bit early. And then at the end of it, I had some time left in my fellowship. So they put me in the health communication side of things in the DMO department. And it was really fascinating to go into these communities, which at the time I you know, I was young and in, in, in life and in career, I didn't realize how inequitably served these communities we were working in were. I was seeing, you know, in health fairs and partner organizations and, and even government trying to communicate some very scary information and very in interesting terms at that time that were just not easily understood by certain communities. It's scary in, in and of itself, especially when you're working with chemical weaponry. You, you you know, you see smoke coming out of something, it can be scary. And you have to find a way to communicate that. So I quickly learned about this focus area in public health around health education and communications. And that's how I ended up at Tulane doing a degree in that. And I remember coming home and telling my dad that I was going to do a degree into public health and he started chuckling. So it was, it was great. And I ended up at Tulane and it's kind of been a little bit of history ever since. Though I will say the life sciences angle of things was completely unexpected. I was had just moved back to Atlanta in the hopes of getting out to Colorado to live and work there when Katrina hit. And that, especially in 2005, cell phones and you know systems were not at all the way they are now. And it was just, I had no cell phone service. I had my best friend move in with me and other people were trying to just you know survive at that point. And six months into being stranded in Atlanta, my dad told me I had to get a job. And a colleague at the agency said, hey, there's this biotech nonprofit thing and innovation, go interview. And I got a job and 16 plus years later, I'm still working in it. And my passion for life sciences and public health has, 
you know, really been at the intersection of that. It's still around communications and relationship building, but it's been really enjoyable staying with one organization, but working with hundreds of different companies and seeing innovators and researchers bring something to life or create something that's going to solve a problem, you know, create a treatment or a therapy for a patient or work to tackle food inequities or whatever it might be. It's just fun to see it be exposed to all these different types of innovations. So I've stuck with it. I've always felt that public health has been at the intersection of it all. And almost now three years since COVID hit, I think it's been very much proven that public health and the life sciences sector need to work more collaboratively together. So yeah, long-winded answer there, Rishi. <laughs> no, no, not at all. I mean, some of the things that you're saying are, are interesting because you wanted to go into teaching English and now you are, you know, in a way facilitating or through communications, like facilitating how to explain something scary and confusing to groups that need to learn about it. So I feel like there is some sort of thread there. I, I am curious about what you think are some examples maybe or some non-intuitive parts of that like like why is it so hard for certain communities to understand some of these messages that you feel are so important like what are some of the barriers that that maybe the layperson wouldn't even think of well i think you know and no disrespect to present company scientists and researchers in particular they all get so into the weeds sometimes and it makes so much sense and you have so much knowledge and it's very impressive and it's very important but it's just it's not your strength I think one of the big barriers is when we develop a lot of these communication tools, we don't have the community at the table to help react to how they're being prepared sometimes. I mean, I'm sure that's not always the case, but in my experience, it's that. And to help translate in a way that that community is going to be willing and trusting enough to even start to hear and listen. I think trust is a big piece of it. And um, frankly, it'd be translated in a way that's going to be easily consumed by a broad set of people, some people that may not have completed high school or some people that are passionate about English literature and couldn't even tell you what's in a cell. So, I mean, I think it's there's a variety of barriers. I think some of it is inequities around education and basic science. Some of it is purely just you know, the big academic not knowing how to break it down. And that's okay. That's not what we pay them to do. I mean, that's why health communication is, you know, really blown up. But I think communications in general and in the industry has evolved so much in the last couple of decades with social media on top of it. It's hard to keep up. Yeah. So not a not the perfect answer, but I think it's just part of a complex series of challenges. So a few minutes ago, before we got the conversation going live here on the podcast, we were chatting about TikTok. And, mm-hmm. you know, nowadays people use platforms like TikTok to communicate messages in a way that might be more pithy, might hit a certain demographic, maybe funny. Like, how do you think those sorts of things were viewed 10 years ago versus today among the academics or the scientists that you're talking about versus has have those kind of views shifted in, in in your mind? In my mind, I don't know if those views have really shifted, but I think they have to shift if we're going to make any impact, especially with the Gen Zs of the world and even the younger millennials. I mean, the reality is even before COVID, Twitter was the fastest source of news. And now most of the younger demographic is on TikTok or Snapchat. Can't speak to Snapchat. I, I don't use that at, at all. I think short consumable bites is important. And it's not just even a generational thing. It's also a busyness thing. I don't want to have to go to 
a website, whether it be a you know a private sector website or a government website, dig through four pages of scrolling through text and understand what I need to do. I want to be able to get that information in a minute or in the podcast that I'm listening to in the car or you know while I'm feeding my child, whatever it might be. And you know, I know some people will say it's maybe generational laziness, but I think it's also the world's coming at us a lot faster. And it's not really, it's just not laziness. It's just the changing dynamics of the world we live in. Platforms, and I'm not, I don't no way associated with TikTok. Um, I just I found that to be a really interesting platform to learn from people and get interpretations of deeply scientific information, which I'm not even able to fully interpret in a consumable quick way while, you know, I'm also working obscene hours with my team because we're responding to COVID too. And and there are people that are perfectly credible on these platforms trying to do that exact thing, make things consumable for young people, for older people that may just not understand science and make it in a fun way I and mean, in a dynamic way. Nobody wants to read a long-winded flyer or, or, you know, not everybody has time to read long articles. It's just, it's a fast way to get information out. And if we're able to get that information out, we're able to save lives. I know it sounds super simple, but it's true. If the way a person delivers the message resonates with one individual and that individual who may have been maybe not even anti-science, but just questioning things. If it gets into one person, that saves one person's life, but it also could make them an advocate for public health or whatever the issue might be. So certain generations that may be in positions of power may not be thrilled about it, but it's the reality of our changing society. And, you know, people always say, oh, millennials will get, the millennials are in their forties now, I mean, in thirties. So it's Gen Z and this is how they're learning. And, you know, we have to pay attention to how they're consuming information and adapt. And I know it's hard to adapt. I'm that micro zennial generation that sits between Gen X and millennial. And I'm I know a world before computers, but I also know a world like with computers and technology. And I, I see the tug of war and I feel somewhat stuck in the middle where I see both sides. And I know a lot of my friends feel the same way. And you just got to learn to adapt. We can't just keep fighting with each other. That's a good segue. I mean, just learning to adapt and the fact that you can see it from both angles. Can you tell us a little bit about the Center for Global Health Innovation with kind of an emphasis on the innovation piece and its mission? Sure. And the innovation piece is really what makes us a little bit different than other organizations working in global public health. So we really were designed to work towards accelerating innovation opportunities inside of global health problems. And all this is really built inside the idea of trust. When it comes down to it, we don't trust each other and communities don't, whether it's um, due to past circumstances, a way government may have treated certain populations, race, whatever it might be. There's a lack of trust across society, domestically, internationally, wherever you want to look. And we really are hoping to bring together populations and people that don't normally communicate in the same manner to help work towards repairing trust with populations. So our mission is to advance global health equity by promoting and facilitating collaboration in order to drive impactful innovation. So we believe that big problems cannot be solved alone. We have to break down silos and find better ways to communicate. And um, I'm gonna keep using COVID as an example because it's a perfect example. 
Before COVID, I don't know of a time where I would have seen supply chain logistics companies, pharma companies, governments, and community workers all in one room trying to find us problems and accelerate innovation to get to a vaccine that quickly. And I don't think any of us would have predicted that except in a time like this. And we need to learn to harness that and continue to do that in order to tackle challenges. So there's more innovation that really could save people's lives and change communities across the planet. And if there's a way to get those innovations accelerated through the market, whatever that market may look like more quickly, and of course, in a regulated fashion, we're going to be able to be there to help facilitate that collaboration and bring the innovations to the people that need them most. And that's what we're about. And we're actually building an innovation district, which will be a first of its kind space that not only has your traditional biotech and medical device and even digital health companies there, but we're intentionally curating a place that also has our public health partners in that space. So we, as a 501c3 nonprofit, can develop programs that will help these these communities, these industries and, you know, sectors or whatever you want to call yourself, get around a table and learn how to talk to each other. Um, and that's what we're really striving to do. And a space simply just allows us the engine, if you will, to drive the ship and be able to do that. But we can't just always be getting around the table in the middle of a crisis. The new cycles will change. Something else will get prioritized. And all the big response agencies are so busy in the, you know, in the moment, it's hard to really be as prepared as we could be. And if we could start to communicate better and build trust with each other, we'll be able to facilitate collaboration and get those innovations into the right hands. Can you speak a little bit about some of the the active projects, like some of the ones where people are coming around the table because you're helping to facilitate those conversations? Sure. So we have a lot of active projects. I, I'd like to talk about two in particular. One is our VAT project, our vaccine access and training program. We were funded by HRSA, the Health Resources and Service Administration, mm -hmm. as part of ARPA, the American Rescue Plan, for our vaccine program. It's a community-based project that really it's forming and expanding our health equity programs and providing us an opportunity to build more outreach and do more community work. So what we've done is we have hired and trained over a hundred community health workers across seven states. And we work with the local communities to build COVID-19 vaccine confidence in underserved communities. And the program um, supports and, and expands the efforts of community health workers and bridges their efforts with the state and public health experts in their communities. Now, with this program, we've already in less than six months, we've already reached over a million people with this program. And it's been all about coordinating. And also operationally, it was really interesting. It was about us as an organization being nimble enough to hire and get people in the community in a very short period of time. Because we're an independent nonprofit with a lot of neutrality, we were able just to move forward and hire with a little less bureaucracy, because sometimes that too can get in the way. But we've mobilized over 75 partner organizations. We have 15 partner implementation um, organizations, over 60 community partners. And these are all types of people. It's multi-state. We have community health workers that are high school seniors or that just, you know, want to do something for their community and they're willing to go through the training. And then we have the traditional health worker that is on the ground teaching and educating people. But I think what's really interesting is the opportunity we're seeing here as we move forward. And that opportunity is really about 
we have invested as a as a society, particularly here in the U.S., putting money into community organizations, organizations like mine and agencies and all that. And they've invested in these communities. They've trained people who have trust within their communities to talk about important things like vaccinations for COVID. But how do we build on that for other crises that we know are coming? So we already have community health workers on the ground. And they're willing and able to talk about other challenges their communities may face. That could be um, pediatric vaccines. We know those rates are going down. It could be tackling diabetes even. These people have trust in their communities Mm -hmm. and they're willing to learn from experts. And we have them at the table making sure that they're understanding the message from those experts. It gets back to communication again. And then they take it and they translate it in a way that is meaningful to the people that are their neighbors and their faith-based leaders and, you know, the people around them. So that is one program that my team member, Dr. Stephanie Adams, has been leading. And it's been really impressive to see the impact we're having and the cooperation we're having with um, partners like Emory University and um, Johns Hopkins, and then all the many community health organizations across the board, a great organization called the Lucan Group as well. And we're now looking to build on that, like I said, to move into other, of course, vaccine challenges, but other health areas. And and how can we learn and continue to keep the trust with the community? And I'm sorry, this is an important point I want to make. We've invested and we've paid these community health workers. Mm-hmm. It, you have to have the respect to pay people and not expect them to volunteer. They need to have a wage and be paid for the work they're doing. Yes, it's for the right thing and it's for their neighbors, but now we've invested in training them. How do we continue to have funding, not just us, but many organizations that have worked across many communities to continue to pay them and find new dollars and not leave them high and dry. I mean, we've gone in and and this is kind of the story of many responses and projects. You go in, you do a lot of great work, and then you leave them high and dry. And that just breaks down trust every single day. And until we stop doing that, we're going to run into problems having to rebuild trust again if there's another crisis and just start the, the cycle all over again. So we need to find ways to continue investing in the communities we as a country have already invested in so we can continue to improve health outcomes for everybody. On that point, I mean, it used to feel like, and I wasn't around 50, 60 years ago, so I'm just going to guess here, but it used to feel like the government or the CDC would just say something and people would just do it, you know, because it's the CDC. And and so you just trust what they say. And that isn't true today because if the CDC just says something, it doesn't just automatically happen because that same level of trust for a myriad of reasons isn't there. So you do rely on the community, like you said. So can you speak a little bit more to the funding of that? So, you know, when you're trying to find funding for these community folks, is that funding coming from philanthropy, which could sometimes be cyclic? Is it coming from government sources? Is it coming from the business community uh, in a way that feels like maybe more sustainable? I don't know where it's coming from, but I guess, A, where is it coming from? B, how sustainable is that funding over, let's say, the course of years, not months? Short answer, yes, all of the above. And, you know, in, in the world of nonprofits, I mean, I hate to say it, we do follow the money right now. And we are hitting the ground on everything from traditional philanthropic dollars to searching out government dollars. But a lot of groups like ours, it's a lot of work to find grants and and write them and win them. There's a, a, a lot of competition, but B, not everybody knows exactly what the communities need. 
And you have to be a little nuanced on um, how you seek those dollars. So there's money out there. There's high wealth individuals. And there is a lot of money out there. It's how do you access it, though? And that requires a strong network and um, playing a bit of what I like to call the chess game of getting through to those people that are able to be decision makers and help fund things. So one thing we are doing, which I hadn't planned on bringing up on this podcast, but I will now is we have our envisioning as part of our facility, which is open for the community to utilize is a health equity command center is what we've been calling it. And we view this as a place that would be, you know, highly state-of-the-art partner with some technology companies that will allow us to visualize data and bring different types of data sets together in one space, but with the partners in the room or virtually tapping into it, whatever it might be. And use our neutrality as a way to share data in a way that can really move a needle. You know, so many corporate partners, for example, may um, donate in their own backyard because that's where they supply power or that's where most of their staff live or whatever it might be. But is that where they really should always invest it? Maybe not. Maybe they should invest it in other areas of the state they may be in. And using large data sets and compiling them a certain way may even allow philanthropic organizations to more strategically understand how to invest dollars and our corporate partners to also think about how to invest dollars in a different and new way that can make bigger impact and do more sustainable gifts. I know uh, the Conrad Hilton Foundation has done that with the Task Force for Global Health and a few others, but you know, doing one-off gifts that are going to last for one year or two years, that's not sustainable. You need 10, 20 years of funding in order to really make an impact and build a sustainable engine, whatever it might need to look like, and really change people's health. People are not going to suddenly not have diabetes in three to six months. I mean, it's it, this is changing people's lifestyles. So we need more significant and more collaborative funding. And that's another role we're finding out that we had not initially planned on, but we're finding is a really valuable role we're playing is being a place where we can bring the community together, but also bring funders together and work with the community and those funders to disseminate dollars in the most impactful way. I'm not a competitive university. I'm not a corporate body that's competing with another corporate that, uh, you know, we may have similar technologies, whatever it might be. My mandate is to help communities. Our mandate is to do that. It's around health equity. So if my mandate requires me to help with, I don't know, creative ways of funding things, then great. My skin in the game is enabling other people to achieve their mission, as long as it aligns with health equity, of course. But yes, if I may, I would like to talk on one other project that I know you're familiar with, Rishi. Go ahead. Go ahead. So one of the projects that we have, I will say is a bit of a labor of love the last few years because COVID interrupted our original plans is our Becoming Better Ancestors project. We have been working on this since before COVID. It was originally conceptualized as a conference to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the eradication of smallpox. But when COVID hit, we really had to pivot. So we have been working now with uh, the great Dr. Bill Fagey and Dr. Mark Rosenberg on this special project. And it's launching at APHA, the American Public Health Association meeting in Boston in just a few weeks, actually, in early November. It's called Becoming Better Ancestors, Nine Lessons to Change the World. And it comes with curriculum as well. And it's going to be open source where people can access the website, you know, schools of public health, programs of public health, anywhere around the world can utilize the lessons that that these great leaders have worked to create. My team manager on it, Lisa Hayes, has really been outstanding in help managing this project. We need to learn how to be good ancestors and leave the world in a better condition than what we found. And in, in order to do this, especially as 
we're still in the midst of a pandemic, despite what people may think. We need to find lessons from the past to help define leadership instructions for today and the future. So as we tackle things like COVID-19, Ebola, which keeps coming up, SARS, Guinea worm, polio, which again, numbers have also increased there, we still are facing the same challenges that Dr. Fagy and many, many other people around the world faced when smallpox happened. There are many lessons, but they have selected nine core lessons to learn from. I think some of my favorite ones are respecting culture and culture matters. The other one is avoid certainty. It can be the Achilles of science. And you just, you, you lose that curiosity when you're so certain about something. Coalitions are essential. Um, just like I talked about earlier, collaboration and coalition building, that is crucial to anything. And we've seen that with COVID. Know the truth, share the truth, act on the truth, down to communications, again, really important. And I think one that is harder for people to always wrap their head around, but with political will, anything is possible, but without it, nothing is. And I think that's one of those things, getting back to your earlier question around funding these things, the reality is the politics of things is interconnected into everything we do in innovation and global public health in many industries and sectors. And you may not like politics, but the reality is it may be impacting the type of research a bench lab scientist is able to do or what community you're going to be able to benefit and work in or whatever it might be. So it's all interconnected and all can be applied to all types of situations. And our hope is that people will utilize their lessons. It's ninelessons.org. You can check it out. It'll be fully launched in a couple of weeks. And we will also have the learning tools for educators to take into their classroom. But watch the trailer. There's some great lessons lessons there. We have some excellent partners, Melinda Gates, Dr. Fauci, a number of global partners as well from various different countries represented. So we really tried to make this as collaborative as possible and representative of the planet, frankly. So it can be really applied to so many other challenges and things that we're we're all facing, frankly. It's a global world out there, whether you like it or not, we're connected and um, we need to learn from our past and implement change for the future. And of course, preventative change, ideally, and when it comes to infectious disease. But it's uh, it's been excellent working with Dr. Fagy and just being on the phone with him and Mark every Monday has been an adventure and he is a wonderful storyteller. And there's so many people I've been privileged to at least be connected with due to him and Mark's networks, which has been outstanding. And our hope is that future leaders in public health will watch these lessons, learn from them and implement them as they go throughout their career. Thank you for mentioning that. You know, there's this cool line that I came across recently. It's uh, if you want new ideas, read old books. And, you know, when I got a chance to talk to Bill and Mark about this, you know, one thing that stuck with me was it was kind of happening during COVID and the things that they would say about their experience and and understanding of smallpox reflecting on COVID felt like this kind of eerie parallel. And in my head, I was like, well, all this could have been predicted. All this could have been foreshadowed, you know, even down to the, the fact that smallpox eradication got into kind of the high income countries and low income countries had a split, a big divide around how to manage it. And, and they were dealing with different issues. And the they're, they're still country, dealing with that issue. I know, so, right, totally. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you see it today with COVID, you're like, wow, like, I see how some parts of the world feel that it's done and over. And other parts of the world clearly are are still dealing with it in, in such a real way. And so yeah, it's it's really interesting to see how stark 
in obvious, you know, like this kind of played out again and, and will likely play out again and again and again. So, well, in societal cultural differences is one of the lessons and the cultural aspect plays into that as well, as well as, of course, the um, economics of the country you live in. But it's a cause and effect world is one of the lessons. And I'm hopeful that we learn from it even just a little bit, but it's it's, it's going to take political will to get it all done. It all ties into these lessons. Every time I'm yeah. I'm like randomly doing work with volunteers, I'm like, oh, there's Bill and Mark popping into my head with the lesson. So yeah. uh, it's a it's an important project we're leading. We're very excited. It should reach across the planet and really just be a tool. And we're glad we're able to provide this through our funders to be open source and used by anybody, frankly. So it's, it's uh, again, it's been a great privilege to work with them, especially as a, a kid that grew up around CDC in the world of public health. It's just a privilege to be around people like that. So. And it's turning out great. The trailer was incredible. So I, I'll give one piece of advice to learners and, and I'd like you to end with your advice to learners. My advice is go check it out. It's pretty amazing and very, very exciting to watch and, and seeing it come together was just a delight. What, what advice do you have for learners and early career health professionals that we can end on about meeting the challenges of the moment? I always find this a bit of a loaded question. I actually spoke to young people the other night too. For me, and this is something I do take from my late father, mentoring, find mentors and understand also yourself, how you can be a good mentee. I think mentoring and helping that future generation and those under you is important. Sometimes, especially when you're in leadership, you get so busy and so caught up in things, you forget about that. So I personally, I block about an hour every week and I try and give a 30 minute call to a couple of students every week. Um, and I do have a couple of formal mentees. Um, my father is a big advocate for mentoring and volunteerism. Um, that's actually his fund at CDC Foundation, funds the disease detective camp at CDC. But that's a big one. Other things that I just want to mention because they've really been relevant and it's been something I've been learning as I have grown in this new role with the center over the last few years during a very trying time is leaning into your strengths and being as confident as you can in that, but at the same time, humble, which is something I've learned from Dr. Fagey to be as humble as you can when appropriate, but play to your strengths and then build teams around you that fill in the gaps where you're not you may not be your strengths. Nobody is perfect at everything and an expert in everything. So for me, it was hiring a CFO right out of the gate. Like that is not my expertise, managing a PNL and a budget. That is not my specialty. So I needed someone that could help be that right hand. And I am transparent enough to know that I need to be able to have somebody that is going to give me good guidance in that space. And building that team around you is important. And that also goes back into mentoring. And then the last thing I'll say is venturing out of your comfort zone it will help you cultivate perseverance, which is something that I have really had to do uh, as we've worked towards building this innovation district. Real estate is definitely not my expertise, and I have learned a lot and have amazing people and board members around me that have taught me that despite something being difficult or taking longer than it should have had to take, thank you, COVID-19, is it still can help us work towards achieving success. So perseverance and pushing outside of that comfort zone. If you're always got things going easy for you, you're going to have a hard time learning from that. So, you know, find those experiences that kind of push your boundaries a little bit and take a chance sometimes. But I know not everybody has the privilege of being able to do that, but I have, and it's been very hard, but it's been worth it. And I'm excited to see what we're building and see how it grows and how me and my team and our community and our board helps achieve this and realize this vision we have pulled together. Well, I know I speak for our entire team in saying that we're we're excited to see it grow as well and are cheering you on. I think that what you guys are doing is incredible. So thank you for that. And thank you so much for being with us today.
No, thank you for having me. And I, I hope to stay in touch and see how we can partner together as we get larger and maybe even launch our own podcast. I'll have you on, Rishi. So. <laughs> That's very flattering. I'm Rishi Decide. Thanks for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to raise the line and strengthen our healthcare system. We're all in this together. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>